name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever met your hero? I see some yeses, I see some noes. What was it like meeting your hero? Was it everything you expected it to be? Pretty much? Anybody else? Good, bad? It's always interesting to hear stories about how people react when they meet their heroes. Because people are either like, it's exactly what I wanted it to be, or they have the opposite reaction, which is what? That old saying, never meet your heroes. It's one or the other. There is no in-between with it, I've found. Now hold on to that thought for just a few minutes. Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what will your wages be? Now last week we heard how Jacob had a vision of a ladder from heaven, and God reaffirmed the covenant, right? I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring, and your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you'll spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to the land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Sounds like the same kind of promise God was always giving Abraham in every other chapter in Genesis, right? All right, you don't see it now, but this is going to happen. Just have faith and follow. Now today we find Jacob talking with his uncle Laban. When we last saw Laban, he was talking on behalf of the family as his sister Rebekah left and went to marry Isaac. Now remember, we're thousands of years in the past. Things were just different back then. And Jacob's response to Laban was that he wanted to marry Rachel. And Laban says, that's wonderful. Hey, since you're broke, come and work for me for seven years, and then you'll be ready to marry her. Now why is Jacob in that position? Because the between the time we last saw him and Esau trading the birthright for a stew, And when we found last week where he was traveling and seeing the ladder to heaven, between those stories, Isaac dies. And before he dies, Jacob, even though having Esau's promise he'd get the birthright, goes to his father with, with skins on his body so he's hairy like his brother. And Isaac at this point is almost completely blind. And he goes in and gets the blessing. And while Isaac gives Esau a different blessing, Esau started telling the rest of the family, listen, as soon as Isaac's dead, Jacob's not going to be far behind. So Isaac sends Jacob off to find a wife. And Jacob's afraid. He's afraid because, A, he knows his brother holds a grudge. And because Esau's a hunter. So Jacob works for seven years for his uncle. And on his wedding night, he goes into the dark tent, finds his wife there. And then the next morning realizes it's the wrong sister. The man who tricked his brother, who tricked his father, is bested by his uncle. And Laban says, hey, listen, around here, you got to marry the older sister's got to be married off before you can marry off the younger sister. That's just our customs. So he offers Jacob the opportunity to marry Rachel for an additional seven years of work. So Jacob does that. Jacob now has two wives, and we'll soon discuss the children, right? Judah, Reuben, Levi, Joseph, Benjamin, 
all the rest. And when we read these stories of Genesis, I've often asked a serious or a semi-serious question, one that goes like this. Why do we even read these stories? Are we supposed to find examples in them? Are we supposed to run around tricking people like Jacob or Laban? Are you saying it's okay that we hold a grudge like Esau did? Now, I was always taught, so this does not originate with me, that there's primarily two reasons why we read these stories. The first is that we get to see the people as they are. And we see the people in the Bible with one very notable exception. They're full of people who trust God, but have the same problems and the same flaws that we do. And we read these stories to remind ourselves of that. We don't skip them, because when we skip them, and we only focus on the happy stories, end up giving people the wrong idea and discourage them. We can give people the wrong idea of who God uses. When we're children, we often think the saints of God are all perfect, and we're just struggling to live into that. And I know that with more than one believer who over the years has been crushed by an ideal of what they think they're living up to, because they haven't read the story. They've only heard bits and pieces, and they think everyone in the Bible is perfect. When we skip these stories, or when we just kind of do them a little bit in Sunday school as children, and then we miss all of the details that go into that, and of humanity and our broken world. But more importantly, I think we miss seeing how God uses real people, how God forgives people. His love and his mercy are new every morning. God sees how Jacob has treated Esau and Isaac, and still God loves him. Now, he doesn't protect Jacob from learning a lesson from his uncle. Let me go back to that question I started with. When we meet our heroes, do they live up to our expectations? Sometimes. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes that nice, genteel singer, that athlete who always has the funny quip, ends up being a real jerk when you meet them in life. So let me ask you a follow-up question different expectations of your heroes as an adult than you did when you were a child? Most of us do. Because we learn the reality that our heroes are really just people. And as we get older, we understand that even the best of us, the nicest, the most spiritually mature, those focused most on loving God and loving others, none of them are perfect. Think of what the psalmist said. The psalmist says, Happier all they who fear the Lord and follow his ways. And that's how we want our spiritual heroes to be, right? Following the fearing the Lord, following in his ways. When we read the story of Esau, Isaac and Esau a couple of weeks ago, the psalm began, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's what we want for our heroes in the Bible. This week we have the verses, the man who fears the Lord will be indeed blessed. We know this. We understand the promises of bless blessings that come with following God. We also know from experience that it's not easy. Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we ought, but the very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. Now, Paul has been talking over the last few chapters about how we really walk with Jesus even when we make mistakes. 
Remember, it's been about a month ago when we heard Paul write, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? And he told the Romans, the answer is Jesus. And today we read how the Spirit helps us to pray. Even in those moments we've made mistakes, we don't know what to say. Even in those moments when grief threatens to overwhelm us. Paul says the Spirit is interceding on our behalf. And that God hears us, and he hears the Spirit. And that God loves us. Paul says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now I want to say pastorally here that this is not some kind of blanket get-out-of-jail-free card. We're not living on a monopoly board. You can't just run around doing what you want. Paul here is not saying you're going to be protected from the consequences of your actions. What he is saying is that when we make mistakes, or when this broken world intervenes into our lives that in some ways can be brutal, that God still loves us and he still takes care of us, just like he did with Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Esau, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, like he does for Paul. And then we get into some of the most encouraging verses in Romans. Paul writes, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who's against us? Now I could stop the sermon here and consider it over, right? What else is there to say? If God is for us, who could be against us? Unfortunately for you all, I'm not that brief. Paul says if God was willing to send his only son for us, what other proof do we have or do we need of his loving care? Because of God's love, no accusation will stand, no slander be proven true, no condemnation is going to be fulfilled. We're conquerors of sin and death through Jesus. And then Paul asks, what will separate us from God's love? And he lists things, up and to including physical death. His response is very, very simple. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says nothing in creation can separate us from God. We're safe in his presence. Jesus is still talking in parables this week. It says, he put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the field. Now we're still in the midst of chapter of the chapter where all we're getting is parable after parable that began two weekends ago. This evening we start with the parable of the mustard seed. Right? The mustard seed's a small one. The one that they had in the Middle East at that time was the little black ones. There's black ones and there are white ones. Mustard seed. The little black ones, when they're planted, can grow to be 10 or 12 feet tall. All from a tiny, tiny seed you might miss if it was laying on the ground. So much so that Jesus said birds can rest in it. The other example that he gives of this is dough. How many of us have seen a small bit of dough with yeast grow and grow and grow. And Jesus explains with these parables, that's what he compares just a tiny amount of faith to. That tiny seed or that small amount of yeast. Something that is so small that you could even miss seeing. But even a small amount of faith that size, God can do incredible things. And then we move off into other types of parables. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. 
And that one still resonates today, right? If someone you trusted gave you a treasure map and said, all you got to do is go right here and you'll find my treasure. Let's be honest. We might be skeptical, but if it's someone we knew and trusted, we'd at least go and take a look. And if we found the treasure there, oh yeah, we'd make sure that we went down to went down and bought that property. Jesus is saying, listen, if you find an item of great worth, he talks about a pearl too, wouldn't you go out and buy it? Even if you had to sell everything else to be able to afford it? Jesus here is trying to convey that the kingdom of heaven is that valuable. You should sink anything else into obtaining it. Then we continue in a type of parable we've heard the last few weeks, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. And when it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets and threw out the bad. And over the last two weeks, we've had similar ones, right? We've heard the parable of the sower, that where the seed is planted, it depends on the soil as to how ready the person is going to be to hear the word of God. And last week, the gospel talked about a farmer who went out and planted his field full of wheat. And that night, his enemy came and threw weeds all into the field. And when everything was grown, they had to separate the wheat from the chaff. We get a similar, similar parable, one that I'm sure resonated with Peter and Andrew, James and John, the fishermen. They would have understood it. They know that when you cast a net, you're not necessarily going to come up with the same kinds of fish. Some you're going to want to sell, some you're going to want to throw back. Same as today. Now I want to point this out. Notice what Jesus says to the church about who does the sorting. It's not us. I'm not called to separate the fish into usable or unusable, the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. Jesus says it's the angels at God's command. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now, I think this final saying is pretty straightforward. Jesus has been telling people how they should look at what God has done in the past in light of what God has been doing now. We hear Jesus all throughout the Gospels say things about the law of Moses like, You've heard it said this, but now I tell you this. Jesus has been doing it. And now he's telling his disciples that they'll do it too. When we read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, Noah, Moses, David, Elijah, God's not giving us a how-to manual. He's not calling any one of us to go out and get another wife, to acquire slaves, to hold grudges, or to cheat people to get what we want. He's not even calling us to live according to the complete laws of Moses. No, what we see here is God's faithfulness as he works through his people. And how the heroes of God and the faith have lived, not perfect, but always following, always striving to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God, as the prophet wrote. And we're called to see their examples we live into the new kingdom, loving God with all of our strength, soul, body, and might, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. In those moments when you feel discouraged and you don't feel like you're living up, remember. Remember Jacob. Remember Esau. Remember Isaac and Abraham. And the fact that even though we could read in Scripture of the great things they did, we also read of the mistakes they made and of God's love and care for them and for us.